Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. In every episode, not this one, but everyone from here on out, we're going to tell you what's on our front page, a quick recap of the stories that caught our attention that week. Then we're going to do a deep dive into our obsessions, the things we couldn't stop thinking about. And finally, Chris is going to make me say something nice before signing off. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we have our roles clearly delineated already, that I am Little Miss Sunshine. But I'm okay with that. And I'm the force of darkness. F- but, as, but at least it's forceful. So for this week, we're going to do something different just so you guys can get to know us and, and we can help you understand why we're doing this uh, other than wealth and power. I have such great respect for you, Eliana, uh, and in your career and who you are. So let's interview each other. We'll get to play. We'll get to put our reporter hats on for a second. We'll interview each other so that folks can get an idea about who we are. So when I think when somebody said, where I said, oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to do this podcast with my dear friend, Eliana, and I'm really excited about it. And they said, yeah, she was at CNN. I was like, well, yeah, and Politico and National Review and now at the Washington Free Beacon. Walk me through your misspent youth and how it was that you went from attending one of America's most prestigious universities to becoming an ink-stained wretch. You know, whenever I talk to younger people now, not that often, but maybe two or three times a year about my career, Mm -hmm. and I have had people say, how do I have a career like yours? I tell them, well, start by not having a job when you graduate from college, (laughs) head down into your parents' basement. I was like reeling from a terrible breakup and super depressed and just thought I have to get out of here and do something. And Seth Lipsky, the legendary Wall Street Journal reporter, had started a New York newspaper with a conservative editorial page, The New York Sun, and he asked me to come and write for him. And I resisted it because I thought I wanted to go into government. And he and you had gone said, to you had gone to Yale to study what when you went to Yale I what studied did you think history, you were going to do but I am of the view that college majors don't matter and well, I was picked uh, I was a, the one with the best professors I was well history obviously is the best major because everything else is sort of history too except for the hard sciences okay so you say I'll take a chance on this fun kooky project well Seth said to me. Just come out for two weeks and try it. Okay. And that was clever. He sort of sold me on going to work for the sun, but also I was desperate. Yeah. Um, but I decamped after six weeks or so to go to the Council on Foreign Relations. And I remember Boring. Seth. Yeah, I remember Seth coming over to my desk and saying to me, are you telling me you're not a newspaper woman? Because you're a newspaper woman. And telling me that the Council on Foreign Relations, where his wife worked, was a red organization. I mean, you know. These were not baseless allegations. The Sun Sun had an editorial policy, and I still have their guidebook, that any positive reference to a communist had to be approved by top editors. So it turns out that Seth was right. And I went to work at CFR, but I ended up back at Fox News. So my intro was really in TV news, cable news. Well, you start out newspaper job. You go to CFR. Then you go to be a producer. Uh, and when I say producer at Fox News, I assume that this was the kind of producer who got things and was yelled at and held things. 
I was actually hired when Hannity and Combs, R.I.P. R.I.P. Uh, turned into Hannity. And the show when it got been, Hannitized, as exactly. we said at Fox at the time, that it got Hannitized. So the show had been like all conversation based. There wasn't really a script. And they hired me to write scripts. OK. And I quickly learned that TV is less about I thought the script was really important. That was everything. That was the whole show. And I quickly learned that TV was it's a visual medium and a lot of other things are more important. And so I spent the three years, I think, kind of learning TV, but also learning about what made Fox tick, how Fox programs, uh, the the primetime show is obviously a little bit different, but that was really interesting. And um, I sort of realized that most everything we were covering really was a print, had been a story in print first. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I can say that, and I, I know you're going to interview me, but I can say the experience of being a print reporter covering a trial or an election or something when the dummies from television would show up five minutes before it was over and lean over to a print reporter and say, hey, what was going on here? Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes I would just lie to them to punish them for their insouciance. But anyway, so you you learned that the words are not as important as the pictures, but you also learned that the stories came mostly from print reporting. I did, and I was, I found that compelling, and I ended up at National Review, um, after an ill-fated stint in public relations, which I realize is not for me. I say this with real love for you. Yeah, uh, I'm not real really affection. Like, good at PR and you. Yes, no, yeah, do yeah, not. Do not, not for me. Right. Uh, so I ended up at National Review where I had been a college intern and really covered the right there. And without belaboring like every step in my career at National Review, I viewed it as like we were a conservative organization covering people. Yeah, but who, you were – look, that's, that's where I first saw your work and you were from the beginning – you know, you have a worldview, but from the beginning, you were a fair-minded reporter. You were a tough and fair-minded reporter, and you covered the right not in a home team way, right? You didn't cover it as like, yay us, more good news for us. You covered it with a gimlet eye, and I thought you really started to distinguish yourself. I'm going to hire you as a black. <laughs> you would be good at PR, I, actually. I would, um, ex- except for the fact that occasionally I have to tell people things they don't like, and then that doesn't turn out great. So I covered the right, but at National Review, it was like easy to get conservatives to talk to you because it's a higher level of trust. So with conservatives coming from National Review. And so I felt like that gave me a good vantage point on kind of what's happening in the conservative movement. And you ended up as the Washington Bureau. I ended up as Washington editor and which the only reason anybody cares about that job is because George Will once held it. Well, also because National Review in those days, you know, National Review liked to think of, it liked to think of itself as a New York publication and its New Yorkness and the William F. Buckley-ness was important. And then the National Review should have been in Washington, D.C. by all like it would make more sense. So the point. Although being, I think they pride themselves on having a sort of remove from yes, the yes, ro- yes, you know, day-to-day politics. So. But uh, I'm saying it, it makes the Washington gig for it made the Washington gig for National Review more important because you were the embassy here. Okay. Just take the compliment uh, okay. and move on. So I was there during the 2016 election, which was interesting and sort of saw how that roiled conservatives. Um, but fast forward because I'm not sure this is all that interesting. But I then went to Politico, which was, you know, down the middle mainstream, or at least I was when I was there. Yeah. Um, and now I, I left Politico to become editor-in-chief of well, the Washington Free Beacon. Oh, you want to, like, spend time talking about Politico? Well, we'll have, we'll get to talk about Politico in future episodes, I'm sure. But you're underselling. That's a big shift. So National Review is uh, an esteemed 
uh, fact-oriented institution, and and you had that going for you. But going from right media to mainstream, I mean, I think of National Review as sort of right mainstream, but to go to a left-leaning or center-left worldview at Politico and to end up at the White House— that was a big prestige move. That was like that. That's you don't see that every day. You don't see it every day. On the other hand, my predecessor in the Washington editor job at National Review, Robert Costa, had, I feel like, popularized yeah. and like sort of made made that a path yep. uh, that people could go down. And, and it's not to say that there aren't others. We think uh, particularly of the New York Times. Peter Baker started at the Washington Times. Like there there are examples, but I'm just saying it's not super common. Definitely. And in my era, like Bob kind of uh, had trod that path Your era. before me. You're like, yes. you're like 10, my era, back then. Though in the days of your, back in 2016. Back in 2016, way back, all the way, way back. back when. Uh, so Bob had done it. And I, I, I think during the Tea Party, well, let me, in, in like the era of the Tea Party and then when Trump won the nomination, I do think that there was a realization in the mainstream. I don't think that this is there now, but for, no, for, for sure. a window of a few years, like and 2010 I think, I think to there 2015, still is. there was a sense in the mainstream that like they needed to, conservatives to help Jonah them Goldberg understand calls it, uh, conservatives. conservatives in the mist where mainstream or left people are like, what are conservatives? What are they thinking? Well, it's what do like they do? going to the zoo and do studying the animals. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Wow, yeah. look at talks. But what was your experience going from right to Politico? Was it the same as you thought it would be? Was it different? Uh, were they? Uh, was is James O'Keefe right? Is, are they rife with uh, coup plotting Reds uh, who are trying to take down conservatives? That's a good question, and I want to be careful like, not to speak to the mainstream. But this is Politico specifically, yeah. where I I really liked and respected my bosses. But I found that there actually wasn't very much difference. I expected things to be different. It. it they weren't really. And I found in general, like wherever you go, there are these commonalities in institutions that most of the time, like if you're doing good work, people don't really care. They're not micromanaging you. You, you ha- I've had a lot of freedom. And at Politico, I think they, they just wanted a good story. And so I never really And lots felt- of them. And, and that's why you, that, uh, your number of words written per week, uh, not even a first year legal associate could match the output. Well, I was I'd tired just reading what you. quality over quantity, put. so you know. You you did both, but you were the the Politico standard uh, for uh, words per week is very very high, and you did a good job. Now, this is when you become a CNN contributor. Is that contemporaneous? I became a CNN contributor about a year into being at Politico after I I, I didn't start on the White House team, okay. um, and became a CNN contributor and. That was like about as you'd expect. I think one of the realizations that I had in like two years at CNN was that all of these people, for, I don't really think cable news has, or, or I guess cable news on the left, has a huge impact. I really felt like all these people were talking to each other, particularly in the Trump era, where CNN was talking to MSNBC, was talking to the New York Times, and it was um, a bit of an echo chamber. And I became, I think, a little bit skeptical about the the impact of TV commentatoring. Well, TV, and we can talk about this more, but TV is um, good for obtaining large amounts of information in a short period of time. You can do a lot with video that you can't do with words, and you can show, and that's why TV used to be a half an hour. TV news was a half an hour. 
right? Once you have to fill 24 hours of television, talking about basically two or three stories a day. He speaks from experience, folks. It is a, it, it, you're like, well, I guess what we could do would be, and that's how, and also the saying with cable news that is very true is talk is cheap. Uh, it's expensive to send reporters out in the field and do things and do all that stuff that Vice News or whoever says they're going to do. That stuff costs a lot of money. Doesn't cost a lot of money to put two fatheads in a studio <laughs> who you've already paid and you've already paid for the studio for them to then, hey, wait a minute, that's what we're doing. Uh, for And then for them, have them say, say words to each other. Okay, so you tell us about going to the, well, what is a Washington Free Beacon and why did you go there? Another good question. You're good at this. Mm, you should, you should do this for I a living. I try this for uh, a job. I went to the Beacon because for as much drama and for as much, you know, cable as cable news was interested in the Trump White House, there was something about it that I found sort of boring living it day in and day out. And that there there was not a ton of substantive policy stuff to cover. So and there the was Free a Beacon lot was, of interest. The founding in, editor was Matthew Continetti, uh, my AEI colleague in the, and getting our ahead friend. Of me. Well, I'm just. So that people understand, you were you were bored with the sur- the surficial coverage of the Trump administration and stuff. I think you the, there was policy. a lot of interest in the personal drama and petty Absolutely. drama. And if, when you live it for four years, it's like same story, different day. And the White and House soap opera and Trump definitely loved the White House soap opera. Remember totally. when they were going to do the reveal where he had the woman waiting to come in to talk to the mother of the dead kid and they were going to do it all on TV and stuff like that. So so. It was a two-way street, but yes, surficial coverage indeed. And I was wanted a, a new and different challenge. Uh, I was looking for just something different and something that I felt would really stretch me. And I, the Beacon approached me because Matt Continetti, founding editor of the Beacon and AEI scholar, uh, was making his transition from the Beacon to AEI. I was going to say, to AEI. When you say transition now, you have to be a little careful. And I think one of the things that, was in in the front of my mind was that a lot of uh, a lot okay the handful of conservative reporters who come from conservative outlets and join the mainstream they they succeed because they basically become indistinguishable from everybody else in the mainstream mm-hmm. like they certainly aren't i just found that most of them all of the incentives are to go along the, the incentives for a tv contract and the incentives for book contracts and was to be the same as everybody else right. and i had sort of i had like this conceit that i'm a little bit different i think differently i don't share a lot of their views and i didn't want to give up that identity mm-hmm. um to to continue in the mainstream and so there was something like i guess a little bit of pride and arrogance um but I I was attracted to the Beacon job because it you have to say me, what it is though you have to say what the Washington Free Beacon I will okay so okay. the Washington I I was getting there all right all right all right fancy <laughs> uh, I uh, I was attracted to the Beacon job because the conceit of the Beacon is to to teach the art and science of reporting to center right kids and young. Young adults. I mean, kids in their twenties and thirties, right. basically newbies. Um, so to teach like this this style of work, um, but to come at it from a different perspective. And I think the Beacon, the view of many on the right, including me, is that the mainstream media is a lot tougher on conservatives and Republicans than it is on liberals and Democrats. And the goal of the Beacon is to bring that sort of you know even handed reportorial coverage to cover the left the way the mainstream covers the right. 
And there's also a sort of, you know, the beacon is funny and it's um, it's a little bit of like a joke on political reporting. We do satire and there's a lightness and fun about it. And one of the things I found in the mainstream was like these people take themselves so seriously and we're not like saving lives and doing brain surgery. And we I think at the beacon have fun. So I was attracted to going back on the right, um, like reclaiming my identity as a as a conservative and a center right person. And also management, like running an organization. It's I think it certainly doesn't come natural to me, but I think it's not something that actually comes natural to anybody. I've become skeptical of the idea of, quote unquote, natural leaders. And I think everybody has to learn this stuff. And that's been the biggest challenge, actually, being at the Beacon for the past 18 months. Well, one thing I know is that as tenacious of a reporter you are and as clear of a writer as you are, these kids are benefiting greatly from Eliana's boot camp. And what will be really cool is 20 years from now, when you look around the media world and you'll say, oh, yeah, she worked. Yep, we had him, too. He was a summer associate, blah, 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 blah. That's the goal is, like, to send these people off to make an impact. Um, but, Chris. Yes. As they say, enough about me. Now let me ask you what you think about me. I was going to yes, exactly. Okay. Enough about me. What do you think enough, about me? Enough about That's me. Right. Uh, how does... A yokel from yokel. West Virginia. Yokel. Where are you from in West Virginia? I'm from Wheeling, West Virginia. How does a yokel from Wheeling, West Virginia end up in the rough and tumble of Washington, D.C. politics and as a regular face, an employee, but also like the main politics guy at Fox News? How did that happen? Well, first of all, I I can't claim massive yokeldom. Uh, my father was a coal executive and— Don't destroy the illusion for our listeners. We he definitely— toiling in the mines in right, West Virginia. Right, def- definitely. I definitely uh, went to uh, the best prep school in West Virginia, which is—let that sink in. Um, <laughs> so— Yeah, describe this place to us. Oh, no, actually, the Lindsley School is a, is a wonderful school, and I would recommend it to any. It's a great institution. But uh, that's like Jonah's best gas station sushi in Alabama. So— And you ended up— I went to Hamden. I went to Hamden Sydney College, where Jonathan it is true Martin. that the, well, he was behind me a couple years, I think. But uh, Charlie Hurt was a couple years ahead of me. For our uh, listeners, like who's Charlie Hurt? Charlie Hurt is the opinion editor for the Washington Times. Uh, total lunatic. Uh, Did the and, Drudge Report for many years. And my children's favorite adult. So he was a couple years ahead of me. He was my editor there. But basically, the story is, and I apologize. Did you do journalism in college. No, I don't believe in journalism school. I just think that no, it's, but I mean, did oh, you write I, I was school newspaper. I, I was the I was the editor of the Tiger at the Hamden Sydney College. But the story, and I apologize to anybody who's heard me tell it before, but the summer after my senior year in high school, my father had told me that I had to get a job, and I thought that old bees meant this in the kind of way like I probably should, but whatever. And then he said. What did you think you were going to do all summer? Lay around by the pool and run up my tab at the at the snack bar uh, and chase girls? And I was like, how did he know exactly <laughs> what I had planned to do this summer? This is devastating. So I wasted my time, didn't find a gig. And then finally, my brother knew a guy that was going to operate a hot dog cart in Wheeling, West Virginia. And the deadline was upon me and I had to have a job. So I went and met with this guy and I died 10,000 deaths. And then... Because I thought, you know, people's dads who work at the courthouse and stuff, because it's not like being a hot dog vendor in Manhattan where there's a million of them. I would I would have been a conspicuous figure. Uh, And so 
the, the guy presented me. He said, there'll be no uniform. And I was like, uh, uniform? I hadn't even thought about that. But he did want me to wear this hat. And the hat did have a dancing hot dog cartoon on it. Uh, right at the front. It was like one of those paper campaign hats. That, so this was your entree into. Well, I saw that. I saw that hat. And I said, I will be <laughs> damned. I will be damned before uh, I will adorn my giant head with that sheaf of paper and stand outside and sell uh, Frankfurters. So as I was driving out, uh, we went past the new. was going past the newspaper. I was like, hey, I know the guy who owns the newspaper. Uh, and maybe he'll hire me. I don't know. My sister worked there. Maybe I can get a job. And Ogden Nutting, uh, against all reason, not only took me into his office in Bermuda shorts and a golf hat, uh, but gave me a job writing sports, overnight sports. And the experience for me, I don't know whether you had this experience at the Sun or anyplace else, but the experience for me, you go in, the carpet's held together with electrical tape. There's ashtrays smoldering. Uh, they're on a word processing system from the Paleolithic era. And the people look miserable and they're profane. And I love them all immediately and immediately knew that these were, this was my tribe. I had found my ink-stained wretches. I had found my people uh, and loved it. I did it all. I did student journalism all through college. And then after I was done, went back home, uh, worked in West Virginia for 12 years, 12 or 13 years, did state house stuff. I, I thought at what paper? At the Charleston Daily Mail. Okay. I, I assumed when I became the politics editor for the Charleston Daily Mail, Capital City newspaper in West Virginia when I was 28 years old, that that is literally the last job that I would have. I assumed, not understanding what was about to happen to the newspaper industry, I was like, this is it. I made it. I'm here. I have an office with a door that closes. Uh, I have a little expense account. I have a column twice a week. Perfect. And then everything changed and I ended up uh, well, let's pause on the everything changed. So what changed and how did you end up in D.C.? Well, the biggest things that ch- that changed were things that happened for the newspaper industry. You know, the Daily Mail is no more. That happened shortly after I left. And then I went to a, a place that was a lash up in West Virginia that was a TV network slash newspaper. That was not a good fit. And then I needed to get to Washington, D.C. And I got a job at the Washington Examiner. Because Britt Hume was having lunch with a friend who knew that I was looking for a job in D.C. And Britt Hume recommended me to his friend, Stephen Smith, who was at the Washington Examiner. And I got a job at the Washington Examiner and became the political editor there. And I think for me, it was the experience of the important thing for a lot of reporters. And this is what I I wish for for a lot for your kids and for all of these folks. And your kids. Well, Not my kids, I, I don't know. I worry about the youngest one. He might he might have journalistic tendencies. He's pushing the school newspaper pretty hard. But I'm sure his older brother will escape the, the fate. But the Chris's kids, by the way, are named like, uh, I think like British not, royalty. No, we're not gonna share their names. But um <laughs> but the the what I hope for the kids, when I say the kids, I mean the young people who work for you people who I talk to through AEI, young people at the dispatch where I'm an associate editor or a contributing editor, is that those years that you spend doing the shoe leather reporting and those years that you spend grinding out committee hearings and doing all of that stuff that doesn't feel very glamorous, it is preparing you to cover whatever else. The years that I spent in West Virginia covering whatever uh, and everything around the state 
were preparing me in a way that no journalism school could have for being a, a Washington national political reporter. And I think that one of the thing, a lot of the mistakes that I think we're going to talk about in this podcast, or many of them, will come from the result of people who did not have the experience of being on the front lines and doing shoe leather reporting and doing it in that way. Um, we have a lot of people who get born in a bubble and stay in a bubble. They have their first job. Is I actually consider myself one of those people. But you, but but so we'll, we're, we'll bring the bubble perspective to you. You know. have you have worked hard to disabuse uh, disabuse yourself <laughs> of those things. But I I I am obviously partial to my own experience and think that my own experience is better. But I do think there is always something to be taught. You asked about journalism school. Journalism is, and you can punch me in the face right after I say this, and it's fine. Journalism is a vocation. Yes, it is a calling. You have to feel called to want to do it. Um, but it is also a trade that you learn by doing, right? You don't, you can't teach a person to be a great journalist. What you can do is pay them a terrible wage to see if they will go and learn to and, and become one, right? And And the way that you become one is by imitating the people who are better than you. I totally did that. I used to sit at National Review and read the New York Times and look at how is the story structured? What is where? What were the different pieces that put it together? And like imitated the style. My, I hand out copies of, uh, there's a, a compendium of Calvin Trillin. You know Calvin Trillin? Of course. So the great Calvin Trillin of the New Yorker back in the day when the New Yorker was the, had the greatest stable of writers uh, that any uh, periodic publication had ever put together. And Calvin Trillin has a collection called Killings, which is just a collection of his pieces about murder trials across the country. And I give that to young reporters and I'm like, just imitate this until you know what you're doing. So imitation is the sincerest form of journalism. And you've got, to, you've got, that's where you've got to start. So I, I guess the reason I'm excited about this podcast is that we both have print and television experience. We both have... I oh, ha wait, wait, wait. Hold on. All right. Tell us about the jump from new from print to television, they particularly do, at do, Fox News. They do pay. During a tumultuous time. Well, I, when I went to Fox News, it was not tumultuous. So when was that? 2010. Okay. When I went to Fox News... So we overlapped for a year. But you were in New York and I was right, down here right. and you were opinion and I was that that's back when Fox had a news division and we we were insulated in the Washington Bureau particularly. And it was not a tumultuous time because I worked for Bill Salmon, the greatest. And this was the beginning of the Brett Baer era, Chris Wallace going strong, Brit around um, the the attitude and Everybody told me, oh, you go into television, it's, a, you know, it's Shark Tank in there. You'll get eaten alive and all that stuff. And in fact, when I got there, I was just stunned by how many lovely, collegial, helpful. The Washington Bureau really was a special place. And it was a, a, a real privilege to get to work there. So that wasn't, that wasn't shocking for me. The, the, the discomfiture of television would only come in later when you, after Roger Ailes destroyed himself and Donald Trump, uh, wrecked house at Fox and things started to get different. So can you expound on that a little bit? I think for outsiders and me included, I, there, I don't think there's been a ton of good reporting about what exactly happened at Fox. And then ultimately you were let go. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I, the, I for sure got fired. For fired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so tell us like what impact did Trump have on Fox? And then why did they put you out on the streets? 
Well, to I, do pod, to do this podcast. Well, I'm privileged. I am privileged. I, I tell you what. Uh, talk about falling forward. I, you know, say I, I want to be proportional about this. After Trump started to really try to steal the election in earnest, it was hard. And you know, I wasn't getting on TV. And I'm writing every day. And I'm writing. And that was a. Those decisions are made by somebody higher than you. Who who goes on TV and talks about what? Well, it wasn't me. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> after about mid-November, it was clear it was not going to be me. And that was because they didn't want you saying Trump is trying to steal the election. I don't know. But I'm writing every day, and I'm doing my I'm doing the rest of my job every day. And I never felt like I was doing the wrong thing. But I but I could you, certainly you get to a point and you're like, what am I doing? They don't want me, uh, and I'm I don't feel like I'm. I, I, this is not syncing up, and I, you start to feel a little despair or a little uh, moral. You, it it gets hard, and then God, well, I think and then God, God solves problems, right? You, so when you say, "Boy, I don't know if I can keep doing this," and the answer sometimes is, "You won't," because you're going to get fired and shot out of a cannon. And, well, hold on, I okay. think there was a lot. Part of this was, okay, part was Trump stole the election, but part of it was anger on the right. That uh, Fox and I, I think you made the decision, but correct me if I'm wrong. I was just call, part of a team to call Arizona yeah, oh yeah. for Biden very early. And frankly, I thought I also thought the call was premature. You thought the call that, was premature. Uh, I know, I know you were right, but I well, sort of thought something. right for the wrong reasons. So. Oh, right for the wrong reasons. Okay, so, so okay. give us your side. Of well, the story. no, 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 no. Right for the wrong reasons. In, after the 2016, given how close it was, how could you guys have known after the 2016 election? Uh, at the direction of Rupert Murdoch, Fox left the consortium that does exit polling, and we built our own. We partnered with, uh, thanks to the great Arnon Mishkin, or as we now call him, Q Arnon, uh, <laughs> uh, developed with, and his team, uh, developed, uh, first of all, a relationship with the Associated Press and the North uh, and the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. We knew that exit polling was dying. If, if, if 40% of the electorate goes to vote early uh, or votes absentee, uh, exit polls become of diminishing value. We did not know that there would be a pandemic in 2020. So basically what happened was we jumped out. Arnon and company built this wonderful new machine, which we flexed in the 2018 midterms that demonstrated that we could call the control of the House before others. It's just a bigger sample. We just have more interviews. We just have more data than the people who are in the old Edison. The former we. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we had already shown that in 2018. So we were excited going into 2020 knowing that we had the rig, right? We had the best gear. The reason that the Associated Press and Fox were the only two states that could call Arizona, or there were the only two outlets that could call Arizona, we were the only two that had the data that we had. So did the AP ever retract its call? No. You don't retract a right call. And... The sad truth is, of course, that there were, there's, was subsequent reporting uh, that bears out what I absolutely suspect is right, that other outlets didn't want to make hard calls. They wanted Fox to do it because they were afraid, and part of it could be well-motivated, they were afraid that if a left-wing journalism, blah, 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 called a key state or called something that Trump would attack them and try to delegitimize the election. But if it came from Fox, it would be better. So I, so there was some hanging back. There's been reporting that there was some hanging back, and I believe it. I do believe that reporting. But the good thing about our team, and this was uh, Bill Salmon is the team leader, and Arnon Mishkin is nerd number one, and me is nerd number two, that as we did with Megyn Kelly 
and Chris Wallace in 2012 over the Ohio call, like we call them and we defend them. We're the best or we were the best. And that was our brand. And Fox uh, traded on that and did ads on that and talked about how good we were. And, you know, I'm content. I, I, I am proud of the good job that we did. So we were not early. And we were not we were not right for the wrong reasons. We had better data and a better team, and we beat the competition. I will drill down with you in later episodes mm. about the impact that Trump had on Fox and <clears throat> the, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, the close relationship between the two entities. But so what's what's your goal with this podcast? Why were you why are you attracted to doing a podcast? Well, I was excited to do a project with you. I've always wanted to work with you. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I've, I've always thought we'd work well together. And I think we have different, I think, as you you joke about, I'm going to make you say something nice. I think you are, Yang. well, but I, but I think that you are a fair-minded, you are critical, but fair-minded, right? You are not in it to dunk and score points. You're not in it for cheap shots. A lot of media criticism that goes on in the world is garbage. It's motivated reasoning garbage. Yeah, for me, I what I have observed, um, and I actually covered media at National Review, and it was so much fun because the media is so reactive yep. about what is said about it and them. Is that there's there are ten thousand reporters covering right wing media, and there's really a dearth of good reporters covering the mainstream and getting like the gossipy, scoopy stuff on the mainstream. So, um, so I thought that would be. A lot of fun. I, th- I think, you know, my I've for a long time, I've had two standard lines about media criticism. Number one, it's the first refuge of the scoundrel. So when you, when a person gets into a tight into a tight spot, you can watch them. So they'll say, well, but what about what the New York Times said about Donald Trump? Or what about what Fox News had on the other day? You say, yeah, well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the politician who did something. Or we're talking about the bill or we're talking about whatever. So very often cheap media criticism is an off ramp for partisans under pressure. So I know we don't have to do that, and that's good, and I think we can be better in that way. And, you know, my other joke is always that media criticism is like uh, asbestos abatement. It is dangerous. You need specialized equipment, and you should probably leave it to the professionals. And I, most of the time, was very content to do that throughout my career. But now, as you, we were just discussing a moment ago, I have, some, I have a different experience now, and so now it's time for me to put on the hazmat suit, put on that beekeeper suit, and go in to start scraping out a little asbestos with you. Well, we'll we'll publish a picture at some point. Of uh, and, you know, I, I often hear people on the left say that the right is obsessed with the media and the left wing tilt of the media and overdoes it. But, like, you know, I, I don't need to be told what I should care about. The media is enormously inf- influential or what I should get worked up about. So, anyhow, that is all the time we have left for today. But join us next week for our first real episode to get all the news about the news. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.